Gresham College presents Early Science and Historical Perspective, the eighth part, Early Mathematical Instruments, by Dr. Jim Bennett, Director of the Museum of History of Science, Oxford. Well, when the invitation came to speak today on early mathematical instruments, my first thought was that uh, the early Royal Society didn't have very much interest in mathematical instruments in the well-established meaning of the term in the 17th century. This was the Royal Society of London for the improvement of natural knowledge, which was not the same thing. But then I thought, well, I've only 25 minutes towards the end of the day, so the audience (laughs) might not be too devastated if there isn't a great deal to say. (laughs) And then, a bit more positively, well, there might be more to say than I imagine at first, and even the relative lack of interest in an area that we might think of as central to science and its history could itself be significant. So I better explain what I mean. First, then, what was meant by mathematical instruments in the 17th century? A term with a much longer pedigree than experimental natural philosophy. That was a relative newcomer, in fact, a very newcomer, very, very new as a comer. The Royal Society was, was certainly interested in instruments, but mainly the newfangled optical instruments, the telescopes and the microscopes, and the even more recently fangled instruments of natural philosophy, uh, such as air pumps and electrical machines. Mathematical instruments were much older, with an active tradition of writing and publishing, as well as making and large numbers of specialist craftsmen in manufacturing centers regulated by guilds and companies and so on. So sufficiently established for all of that uh, commercial and regulatory apparatus. Optical instruments and instruments of natural philosophy could be used for making discoveries about the natural world making experimental investigations that might yield new natural knowledge. Mathematical instruments had no such ambitions. They were for solving problems that were amenable to mathematical techniques, especially geometry, for finding the time or the positions of the planets, for surveying land, for drawing a map, for navigating a ship, for designing a building, for finding the distance of an artillery target and setting the charge and the inclination of the gun to hit it, and so on. Many fields of application had been developed for instruments such as sundials, astrolabes, quadrants, theodolites, maps, globes, rangefinders, inclinometers, and so on and so on. But they did not interfere with natural philosophy. While this was a limitation to their competence, it was also a source of freedom in their design and use. They did not need to conform to the strictures of natural philosophy. Now, my favorite example of this is that terrestrial globes rotate on polar axes before Copernicus proposes, 1543, that the Earth might be doing the same thing. So you get globes that rotate, just as the Earth is supposed to do, before anyone in in cosmology thinks that might be happening. Now, these globes do not 
represent anticipations or precursors of the Copernican system of the world, they simply offer a convenient device for uh, dealing with calculations relating time and date and geographical position. So they're useful. It's useful that they rotate. It doesn't have any implications about the way the world is. A characteristic element in contemporary practical mathematics, the place where you find these mathematical instruments, was called the theoric. Now, it might not be a term that uh, is familiar to every, everyone here, so I'll explain it as best I can. It's a term of art that's used in the, in the period. A theoric was an encapsulation of information secured by a systematic technique usually a geometrical one, in a device that might be an instrument but could be a diagram or a construction, the rules for constructing a a, a diagram. Results could be obtained from the theoric that were not entered in its construction and that were extracted by the operation of proper protocols by the knowing user. The example most familiar to historians of historians of science is the theoric of planetary motion. You've all probably heard about deferent circles, epicycles, and so on, the, uh, equant circles. The way you calculate planetary positions, that's a theoric. That's the one that historians of science uh, have generally uh, heard about. So it's a geometrical construction using combinations of circles for predicting or retrodicting planetary positions. But mathematical practice has many other in different disciplines, much more, not nearly so fashionable among historians of science today. As the vehicle for an operative technique rather than a causal explanation, the theoric belongs in the mathematical arts and sciences rather than in natural philosophy. It does not make the epistemological claims of natural philosophy regarding the true understanding of nature. The geometrical cartography of the 16th century, for example, offered world maps that took a variety of forms, different shapes, shaped by different geometrical projections. And these varieties could coexist. It wasn't a matter of which one of these is true. That wasn't the point uh, of, of these theorics that we call maps. They were to be deployed according to their suitability for different purposes. Now, keeping in mind that contemporary meaning, that meaning in the period of mathematical instrument, we will not find much of relevance in the early deliberations of the Royal Society. So it might look as if I don't have a subject. Well, it wasn't my subject. I was given it by the organizers, so I thought I'd better take it on. (laughs) We can be sure that certain mathematical instrument makers were known to certain fellows. A little bit of a discussion of that just a moment ago. We know, for example, of Hook and Wren employing some of them. Another example would be that in bringing Oldenburg up to date with news of plague-ridden London in 1665, Robert Murray, or Murray wrote as follows, we are here much troubled with the loss of poor Thompson and Sutton. Now, they were two mathematical instrument makers in London, very well-known ones, Anthony Thompson, Henry Sutton, two of the capital's finest mathematical instrument makers who died 
uh, in the plague. In fact, I want just to show you a little bit of what I'm talking about. I want to take this opportunity to demonstrate just how outstandingly good the best of the London makers uh, could be at their trade. Henry Sutton was one of the most original among these makers, one with significant interests in geometry and new designs. And he may also have been the finest engraver uh, in the city when the Royal Society was founded. Now, over in the museum, uh, where, as you heard, I work, Museum of History of Science in Oxford, we have a universal astrolabe, as it's called. That's an astrolabe which uh, uh, projects the whole of the celestial sphere in one plate, if you know about astrolabes. You don't need different latitude plates. Don't worry about that. So the, uh, a universal astrolabe by Sutton. And, but also, very unusually, we have a, an early pool taken directly from that astrolabe. So, in other words, someone has inked it, and put it in a press or, and, and, and printed it. So printed directly from the astrolabe. So uh, there it is. Now we've been struggling a little bit with the lights and, uh, and uh, seeing the images and so on. I really want you to have a look at this. On the, on the left, you have the instrument, this astrolabe. And on the right, you have, a, as I say, an early pool. We can tell that it's, it's, it's early. It's contemporary, more or less, with the instrument taken directly from, from the instrument. Um, and you might think, you know, what's that for? What's that print? It's in reverse, of course. So you, not, not a lot you can do with it. It's, uh, it's, back, it's back to front because it has been uh, uh, engraved uh, directly. Why was it made? And different possibilities have been uh, suggested. It's a close-up of part of it. What immediately strikes you, I would say, when you're looking at this print is its extraordinary quality. To pull such a print from so complicated an instrument seems to me an act of bravado. I mean, look at it. It's extraordinary. Uh, an assertion of self-confidence in outstanding skill. Any untidiness or unevenness of line that may not be obvious on the brass surface when you look at it would immediately be revealed by the print. But look at it. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. This is done by hand, okay? And this, of course, is a magnification of it. Amazing. I and mean, it is really extra. I shouldn't go on, but it is extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> and this is fairly early as regards printing from copper plates in England. Um, Sutton is saying he's as good as any of these contemporary uh, engravers. There may be some leeway in a figurative print, uh, print you know, if you have a, an, an image of a, of, a, of a landscape or a portrait or something like that. But there's nowhere to hide here, nowhere to hide any faults in a detailed projection like this. It's going to, you're all going to be able to see it immediately if there's anything wrong. I can't see anything wrong. So mathematical instrument making, I don't know if that's my last one. We well, can see it. Uh, that's nice because it's, it's a signature. Henricus uh, Sutton, of course, is back to front down the bottom there. So mathematical instrument making has reached an impressive level of skill in the 17th century. The English and, and uh, English mathematicians and instrument makers are introducing innovative and successful designs, some of which I'll mention later, as well as cultivating manual skill. But this is not a discipline much at evidence at the Royal Society. So there's this other parallel uh, technical story. Uh, which doesn't really bother the society very much. 
searching the early, vo- you know, trying to find something to say, <laughs> searching the early volumes of the uh, Philosophical Transactions, I, I found one article on a mathematical instrument in the, contem- in the sense of the period, uh, and it was by, uh, oh, sorry, I had another one. I just couldn't stop myself. Look at that. <laughs> where, the, where the projection insists, because of the nature of the projection, that the, that the lines get, get closer and closer together towards the edge. You know, Sutton can still, still do that. Sorry, I forgot my head. Anyway, uh, the, the one, the one uh, mathematical <laughs> instrument in the Phil Trans was indeed by an alumnus of this college, of whom you've heard already. Uh, on the left-hand side there, this is uh, Christopher Wren's perspectograph. Um, it's a, it's a, an instrument for, for drawing in perspective. Uh, so you trace, you, you, you put your eye at A and you, 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 you trace uh, around the scene and, and mechanically it's drawn on a, a vertical piece of, a piece of paper on that vertical uh, drawing board. It's known to the mathematical instrument maker uh, Ralph Greatrix. In fact, it's in uh, the, the, the Hartlip uh, record. It's attributed to Wren as early as uh, uh, 1653. Wren described it to Greatrix. Uh, he had one bit made by Anthony Thompson, the other person who uh, uh, Murray mentions died in the plague. Um, Oldenburg had one who's come up. Pepys has come up uh, already today. Pepys had one. Boyle had one, yes, so, so, so clearly this was a, a must-have uh, thing for the, for the group of people we're, uh, we're talking about. Um, and there was, and indeed, also the other, not a person who had one, but it's come up, the Royal Society's Museum had one, so the repository uh, in that, uh, that catalogue by Gru that you saw earlier, there's a Wren perspectograph. That Wren provides the instance uh, where we can recover a, a link between mathematical instruments and the Wadham Gresham Royal Society nexus is typical of him. His engagement with practical mathematics remained distinctive from his early interest in sundials. Through his activities in drawing, instrument design, geometrical astronomy, machines, surveying instruments, and so on. By the mid-1660s, it was far from clear, it seems to me, that all the promise of this precocious, uh, of his precocious youth was going to lead to any lasting and substantial achievement. Until, of course, the architectural opportunities that came to him after the fire of London so closely matched and engaged the range of his practical mathematical talent. Hooke, of course, was the other figure whose mathematical, practical mathematical interests and skills could be turned to good effect in rebuilding London. Through his commitment, uh, sorry, though his commitment to uh, experimental natural philosophy alongside practical mathematics was profound and, and sustained. On the mathematical instrument side, Hooke designed surveying, navigational, and astronomical measuring instruments. But even two swallows don't make a summer, and we must return to the fact that mathematical instruments, for all their development and significance in the 16th and 17th centuries, were not prominent in the work of the Royal Society. This had emphatically not always been the case for Gresham College and its mathematical professors. For the early predecessors of Hooke and Wren in Gresham mathematical chairs uh, had been very uh, interested in such developments. Wren certainly was aware of these precedents, saying in his inaugural address that you've heard 
about a couple of times already today at Gresham in 1657, that the early professors had been, says Wren, men of the most eminent abilities, especially in mathematical sciences, among whom the names of Gunter, Brerwood, Gellibrand, and Foster are fresh in the mouths of all mathematicians. Now, he said that, obviously, for a Gresham audience, um, but still, there was truth to it as well. The reputations of these men were certainly in practical mathematics and mathematical instruments. Perhaps Edmund Gunter, most of all, uh, as we heard uh, Professor Briggs has left, I gather, but uh, he mentioned uh, Gunter's uh, uh, fame in uh, the uh, design of uh, introduction, invention of mathematical instruments. Um, here's a Gunter sector. Um, I'm not quite sure. I think, it's, I think it's one of ours at the Museum of the History of Science. They all look much the same uh, by, by Elias Allen. Uh, they were quite common. Uh, so this is a Gunter sector. Um, it's, a, it's an instrument for calculation. Uh, you, you have sets, pairs of, uh, of, of lines uh, with, uh, drawn out according to different functions depending on the functionality of the instrument. But you can imagine if you just have ordinary, equally spaced lines, you can open the, uh, tri the uh, arms of this uh, sector to whatever angle is appropriate to the kind of ratio you're working with. And then with a pair of dividers, you can just take off uh, 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 distances to scale. Supposing you're drawing a, a plan to scale, then this gives you uh, the individual uh, 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 distances, lengths that you need without having to do any proportional calculations. The instrument does it for you. So it becomes very popular. Um, you saw uh, Professor Briggs showed another version of this, um, of this, this uh, uh, illustration. These are the two sides of the same instrument. Um, this is an engraving by the instrument maker Elias Allen. Uh, of, of Gunter Sector, which becomes, as I say, a very common instrument. And Gunter Sector is a development of, uh, I mean, lots of people had sectors, a sector type of instruments in the, in the 16th century and the early 17th century, most famously Galileo. But, but Gunter Sector has particular lines on it which are used for navigation. So he, he uh, develops a, a, a variant of the instrument which is appropriate to the, the, the trigonometrical calculations required for Mercator sailing, for sailing using a Mercator chart. And in his book, he explains how to use the instrument to do that. It's a little, Mercator sailing is rather complicated, uh, and, uh, but, but Gunter uh, develops this instrument which, which, as I say, becomes very popular and, uh, and writes a book about how to do it. So the sector, the typical mathematical instrument, uh, and uh, there's a chap, in fact, these are just two bits of uh, illustration from, um, from uh, one of Gunter's books. The chap on the, on the left is using his sector with his pair of dividers uh, to do his calculation. The chap on the right, you can see, has a, has a cross staff, and you might not think that that's particularly original with Gunther, but it is, in fact, uh, an illustration of Gunther's rule. And Gunther's rule was a very important instrument indeed, probably in the long run, certainly in the long run, more important than Gunther's sector. But it was originally engraved on, the, on a cross staff because it was so particularly uh, adapted to, uh, to navigational calculations. So you'd have your cross staff and then you'd have the, the, the lines of the Gunther rule on the cross staff itself. And so that's why the chap on the right is with his left hand. He, he's indicating the other use of the Gunther rule. He has his dividers. And he has a rule. The Gunther rule is, is a logarithmic rule. So it ha it's, 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 it's doing the same kind of calculations as the sector, but now using Napier's logarithms that so enchanted uh, Professor Briggs, as we heard 
uh, earlier uh, uh, today. So Gunther uh, uh, applies that uh, mathematical technology directly to uh, the calculations required by uh, Seaman with log trig scales on his rule. Uh, and of course, it's only one step from that, instead of using dividers to have two rules sliding across each other, and you have a technology that sustains so much of practical mathematics until, what, 1972 or something like that, uh, when, when you, know, you get a lot of uh, pocket calculators. But right until then, Gunther's technology in this tradition of mathematical instruments is doing the business in so many uh, professions where uh, calculations are required. The other instrument that's very, very common through the 17th, 18th century is Gunter's sector, which is a kind of, uh, uh, it's, it's, a, 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 it's for telling the time, but also for doing a variety of uh, uh, astronomical calculations. And I just show you a couple of, of examples. We haven't time to think about it. But the one on the bottom left was made in Oxford by Prugene, so uh, an instrument maker in Oxford. Okay. And then Samuel Foster, too, was, pre, uh, was preoccupied with instrument design, sundials, improved quadrants, calculating instruments, and so on. I might have something that just gestures towards uh, uh, Foster's, Foster's interests. So in the early, uh, the early uh, professors of the, of the, uh, uh, at Gresham College were, were very much engaged with this, this other, other tradition of instrumentation, this much longer tradition that I was invited to talk about, the tradition of mathematical instruments. If we focus on the early Royal Society group moving through the uh, Wadham College period in the familiar narrative, we see a shift in emphasis from practical mathematics that we've seen just now to experimental natural philosophy and from a concern with developing sectors and quadrants to the invention, improvement and employment of telescopes, microscopes, barometers and air pumps. This development is a connected narrative, not an arbitrary sequence. I mean, there's, there's meaning to it. There's a, there's, a, there's a sense and a purpose to it. The problems confronted by the new philosophy were inherited from the inadequacies and dilemmas of the old. The ambitions and agendas of the new philosophy were influenced by visionary, pragmatic thinkers. But the, the qualities and characteristics of practical mathematics were an important resource for the emerging experimental mechanical philosophy. So this, what I'm saying is that this mathematical, this practical mathematical tradition feeds, provides a resource for the new experimental philosophy, even though it isn't part of that philosophy itself. So uh, a resource for the emerging experimental mechanical philosophy. There is the kind of things that it, it brings to the table are mathematics as a tool of uh, synthesis, mechanics as a paradigm mode of causal operation in the natural world, the natural world as well as in the artificial one where we've seen, manipulative operative knowledge as a resource for the experimental approach to natural philosophy, and instruments as the tools and embodiment of this experimental engagement with nature. The story of Gresham College itself, from the practical achievements of Gunter to the experimental philosophy of Hooke, is an institutional strand in the same narrative. As early as the mid-1640s, uh, when Foster was still in post and John Wallace, as we've heard, was becoming involved, what Wallace remembers being discussed are 
the circulation of the blood, valves in the veins, the Copernican hypothesis, the nature of new comets, and so on. The familiar, I think, uh, list that many of you will know, phases of Venus, improvement of telescopes, the weight of the air, again, as we've heard, the impossibility of vacuities, the Torricellian experiment in Quicksilver. Wallace gives this list where, there is, where mathematics is there, but there's a very strong shift already in the uh, 1640s towards natural philosophy. When Wren writes from Wadham College in February, taking it uh, forward another decade, February uh, 1656, probably to William Petty, giving him what he calls philosophical news, says in his letter, I'll tell you the philosophical news. His 